Okay? I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to talk about the relationship between the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, and uh, the sin of the golden calf, the Chete Egel. Because um, there's sort of a, a very strong relationship between the two of them. And according to, according to Rashi and many of the other commentators, the Mishkan came about because it was a fixing for the sin of the golden calf. So according to Rashi, at least, and, and, and this school of thought, the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and when we talk about the tabernacle, we're talking about, um, we're talking about the prototype for the, the Beis HaMikdash, the, the holy temple in Jerusalem. And of course, that has tremendous significance for us because one of the signs, or perhaps the greatest sign of the... Uh, the arrival of, of the Mashiach, the end of days, so really the fixing of the world, will be the construction of the third holy temple. So the third, so in fact, the Rambam brings down uh, as halacha that we won't know whether someone is actually the Messiah or not until they actually build the Beis Hamikdash or dedicate the third Beis Hamikdash. Mm. So, so this is very significant. Someone can be very holy. You can have great great esteem for them, um, but they are not the Mashiach until they dedicate the third Beis HaMikdash, the third holy temple. So given the fact that the Mishkan, translated as the tabernacle, was the prototype for this, um, and we, we had it in the desert, and by the way, just an interesting fact, the first holy temple was destroyed, the second holy temple was destroyed, both on the same day, of course, the ninth of Av, but the Mishkan was actually never destroyed. So, so the Mishkan actually, given the fact that it's sort of the DNA of, of the third holy temple, of the, this eternal sort of dwelling place for Hashem, Shem, of course, fills the entire universe. But nonetheless, he chooses to, so to speak, rest his name there to make that, so to speak, his address. Um, it's just interesting that, that the prototype was never destroyed because because it's an expression of eternality, it makes sense that the, the first expression of it is, is, is still with us. Where? We don't know, but it's, but it's there. It's somewhere. Um, as is, by the way, the, the holy ark that we kept the tablets in. That was not destroyed. That was hidden away, the Gomorrah says, by one of the last kings of Israel before the temple was destroyed. He knew that the destruction was coming, so he hid it away. So the premise of, of a movie like Raiders of the Lost Ark that they're actually looking for it and they're going to find it, that's actually based in reality. I mean, it's somewhere. We don't, we don't know where it is, but it's there to be found. Um, okay, so, so again, one school of thought among the Torah commentators is that the, the Mishkan, right, this prototype for the Holy Temple, was a direct result of the sin of the golden calf, meaning to say that it was a direct fixing for the sin of the golden calf. And we'll get into that maybe a little bit more. But you should know that there's another school of thought from the Zohar, which says that, no, we were going to have a Mishkan no matter what. And m maybe, maybe there's a relationship with the golden calf. I, I don't know enough about this particular position that the Zohar is taking. But no matter what, this was part of the divine plan that we should build this edifice. And one of the supports for this is the fact that in terms of the order of the weekly portions in the Torah, you have Parshas Truma, which sets out the, 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 the whole plan for the Mishkan before you get to the sin of the golden calf. So the very fact that you've got the whole blueprint, so to speak, before the incident of the golden calf ever takes place, shows that it was always the plan that there should be such a thing, and it didn't just come into the world as a fixing for the golden calf. So again, what you see here is just in terms of if you want to just turn it around like a diamond and see it from different sides, you see on one level, the Mishkan is a fixing. On another level, there's this eternal aspect to it that maybe it was supposed to be here no matter what. It's just part of the fabric of the universe. And of course, we all know that the Mishkan itself was a miniature of the perfected universe. And it says that Hashem rejoiced when we completed the Mishkan, like He rejoiced when He Himself created the world. 
And there are other parallels too. For instance, when Moshe Rabbeinu was, was um, putting up the, the, the Mishkan, was finishing it off, for seven days beforehand, he put it up and then he took it down. Remember, it was a traveling thing that could be dissembled and then reassembled during their travels in the desert. He put it up, took it down, put it up, took it down, put it up, took it down. He did that for seven days. And on the eighth day, it remained standing. So that's very interesting because if you understand that the, that the Mishkan itself is a miniature of the world, well, God created the world in seven days. So here you have it being done over a period of seven days. And what's interesting is that it, it is dedicated on the eighth day. The eighth day, you know, um, the number eight in Torah represents what we call Lamala Minateva, above nature, meaning eight is the realm of the infinite. And of course, one of sort of the cool little things is that the mathematical symbol for infinity is the number eight on its side. So, so here you see that, that what God intended to create when he created the world, and we're still very much in the middle of the process of creation. We have to remember that. The world is still being created. That's what we're here for. We're partners with God in terms of finishing off the world. It's very important because otherwise you'll have the thought that this is the finished world and then you ask yourself the question, why is it so messed up? If God is all-powerful and God is good, what are we doing in this messed up world? And the answer is, very straightforwardly, the world is not done yet. That's why we're here. We're partners with God in terms of finishing the world. But you see that the Mishkan, which again is a miniature of the perfected world, was left up on the eighth day. The eighth day means beyond nature. In other words, it's an expression of perfection. Okay. So now let's, let's get back to this relationship between the Mishkan, building the Mishkan, and building the golden calf. And why this school of thought among the rabbis, among our sages, that the, that the Mishkan itself, how is it a fixing? How is it a fixing? That's what we need to know. And then we'll find some very interesting other teachings along the way. Um, so, so in order to know how it's a fixing, what we have to kind of figure out is um, what, what went wrong with the golden calf? What was it a fixing for? First, we have to figure out what the problem was that the Mishkan was a fixing for. Okay? So, so to me, the, 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 the clearest way to understand it is um, a Torah that I heard in the name of the Briskorov. And it goes like this. It's a, it's a very beautiful question with a very straightforward answer, which is, what was so bad about the building the golden calf? Didn't we also have golden statues of angels in the Holy of Holies? And not just in the Holy of Holies, but on top of the, the, the Torah ark, the ark that held the Torah. Two golden angels sat on top of it. So what, there's golden statues, and, and the golden calf is a golden statue. So what's the difference? That's the question. And the answer is a wonderfully direct, like just, just slices everything just straight through. The answer is, God asked us to make those golden statues. He didn't ask us to make this golden statue. Very, very straightforward. Okay? In fact, it's more, he commanded us to make those, and he certainly didn't command us to make this. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so therefore, we have to look more deeply into the dynamics of what the golden calf represents. Because the golden calf then becomes an expression, really, of our own egos, if you will. Of our own unchecked egos, if you will. And, and by the way, whenever I use a word like ego, I always think it's very, very important to just pause and, and explain. You see, Judaism is extremely strong on a person having very healthy self-esteem. You have to understand your importance and your greatness. That's huge. That's the engine that drives you through life. That, that, that's, 
Feeling good about yourself is what allows you to accomplish anything in this world. Okay? When we talk about ego in the Torah context, what we're, what we're saying is appropriating power that belongs to God and putting it on yourself. In other words, it's a misuse or a misunderstanding of, of the role of who we really are. Okay? We are great. God puts a piece of himself inside of us. That's our neshama. That's our soul. This is awesome that God does this. So there's no limit to a person's greatness, really. Nonetheless, we're not God. Nonetheless, we, we don't run the world. God runs the world. So, so the, the, the deep problem, and I'm going to show you an expression of this that I found that I, I think is really makes this point very strikingly, um, is that by the golden calf, we decided that we were going to be the ones who told God how we were going to serve him. In other words, instead of going with a, a bottom, a, a top-down approach, saying there's a God in this world, and it's his world. We're guests in his world. So let's, let's be good guests, essentially. Let's, let's follow house rules, which is a, you know, one way of looking at the mitzvot in the Torah, right? Instead of looking at it that way, we took a bottom-up approach, which was sort of like, God will tell you how we're going to serve you. Right? Now that's, that kind of is a fundamental disconnect, if you think about it. Right? And that's, an, again, an appropriation of power that doesn't really belong to us. And that's a very humbling thing, by the way. Because, you know, we want to be, we want to be the final authorities on everything. And we want to say things like, hey, it's my life. You know, Rabbi Green used to say, it's, it's your life. You're, where's the receipt? <laughs> you know, th- those are your eyes. Where, where's the receipt? Right? Sh- show me. Right? So it's, 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 it, it, it involves an act of humility to acknowledge the fact that, you know something? It's not my world. I'm a guest in this world. And, um, you know, it, there's a medrash. It says in the Torah that, that Hashem asked Adam, Harishon, the, the, the first person, to, to name the animals. And, the, he, and he does. Adam names the animals. And then the medrash adds one more line, which is not in the, in the written Torah, uh, in the Chumash. After Hashem names the animals, Hashem says to Adam, and what's my name? Right? That's like, it's deep, right? And, and Adam says, Adoni, which means my master. So, so from the earliest moments, there was a recognition that, of course, God is my master. Right? And that, that shouldn't strike us and if it does, we have to work through this. That shouldn't strike us as a diminishment of our own worth, of our own dignity. It, it should not, because we're part of something larger, of a, of a divine plan. You see? And this is one of the main ways in which the Mishkan was a fixing for the sin of the golden calf. Because this sort of egocentrism, which the Golden, making the golden calf represents, which is that I'm going to call the shots, all of a sudden a mishkan has all these different parts. And every single part plays a crucial role. And the building doesn't, isn't a proper vessel, isn't, isn't a, um, you know, if you think of it in terms of circuitry, it's not going to work unless every single piece is there. So every single piece is of crucial importance, right? Even a, a hook which held up the curtains, right? One hook, if one hook is missing, then the Mishkan is not complete, then God's presence doesn't come down and, and dwell in the Mishkan. So when one realizes that they're part of something larger and that all of us are a piece in this giant puzzle, every piece of which must be present in order to fit together, 
then all of a sudden this is a check and balance. On the one hand, it's a validation and an affirmation of your extreme importance, right? Because the whole thing doesn't work unless you're there. On the other hand, you understand that you're just a piece and that there's something larger going on, right? So, so you know, we have it in today's every single historical period and every society throughout history is going to have its unique challenges because each situation that we're in is going to have its, um, its misdirects, basically. It's, it's false premises, which we have to be able to see through. And um, the, the, the culture that we have today, and I think that we'll all recognize this, is that what, if, if I were to say to you, um, what's, what's the higher level of um, spiritual service? What's the higher level of spiritual service? Is it if I command you to do something, right? Well, not me. If God commands one to do something, or if someone does it out of their own free choice from, from like, volunteer, like, no, 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 I, I want to do it. I want to do it. I'll, I'll do it. You know, it's coming from my heart to do it. So I think that if we think about this honestly, most people would say the, the second one. Sort of like, no, no, no. If you do it on your own, this is the, the greatest expression of, wow, you know, that's really, wow, it's coming from the deepest, highest place. Do you know the sages of the Gomorrah say absolutely the opposite? They say that it's a higher level of service to do a mitzvah, something that you're commanded to do, even higher than to do it just because you want to do it because you're inspired to do it. And do you know why, they say? Because, because if you're commanded to do it, you want to do it less. <laughs> therefore, therefore, you have to overcome your Yetzirah, your negative inclination, and then you're doing like two, two jobs at once, basically. You're overcoming an obstacle to serve, and you're serving. So the actual sort of like, um, if you were to sort of hook yourself up with sort of like all sorts of like, you know, electronic readers that can measure the energy that you're emitting, your soul is actually emitting more light because you're overcoming this sort of like obstacle, like, don't tell me what to do, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what to do, you know? So it's sort of like if you overcome that, that's an emission of light, right? And then the act itself that you're doing, that's an emission of light. So it's actually greater than if you just go, oh, I want to do this. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and do this. And with this in mind, you can get an insight into something that's really weird if you think about it in the Torah, which is, look at the test of Abraham. Abraham Avinu, Abraham, right, the first Jew, he, he is the greatest exemplar of kindness, like ever. He's chesed. He represents chesed. He is the embodiment of chesed, right? And in fact, if you take the gematria of his name, Avraham, it adds up to 248, which is the number of positive mitzvahs in the Torah, meaning the ones that you do, as opposed to being told, don't do. It's the ones that you do, right? And yet, Mr. Chesed, Mr. Kindness, what are some of his tests? Oh, Kill your son. <laughs> what? Kick that other son out of your house. What? You know, these are like the, the, the opposite. Although, by the way, I have to make clear, God never told Abraham to kill Isaac. But that was the nature of the test. He knew Abraham would think that that was the command. And anyway, that's, a, that's another subject. Um, but the point is, is that, that Abraham was actually tested in the things that didn't come naturally to him. That's the point. That's the point. Because, you know, if you're just sort of like on board with all the things that you're on board for, well, you know, there's, there's, there's a vast amount of real estate inside of every single person. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, you know what, I'm going to make these neighborhoods beautiful, but those neighborhoods don't go into, <laughs> you're not allowed into those places. Those places are mine, you know? It's like, okay, well, that's one level. That's certainly one level. But another level is, here's a key, go wherever you like. Go wherever you like, you know? 
then it's like, wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. Right? That's, that's, that's what we're striving for. That's what the Torah wants us to do, to take our enti- the entirety of ourselves and lift it up to Hashem. Okay? So, again, let's get back to this idea that, that really the sin of the golden calf, the cheta egel, was this assertion of self, of, 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 of ego, not, not, not self-esteem, we need self-esteem, but ego meaning to say the misappropriation of, 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 of godliness onto ourselves, right? In terms of saying, we, I call the shots. I call the shots. Now, I just want to make one uh, note. Um, uh, my friend Josh pointed out something to me, which I want to share with you, something very interesting. Again, it's always good to keep track of the culture that we're living in and the zeitgeist, if you will. Like, what's, what's going on? Because these are the challenges that are being thrown our way. So there's a very interesting project that's going on uh, uh, with Google right now. And you see, excuse me, you see an expression of what I'm talking about here, which is that um, Google is digitizing um, books. Like, like, like you can, like, for instance, there are a lot of books. If you, if you need a library book or something like that, you can go on Google Books, and it might be online. The whole book might be online. So it's an, it's an incredible resource. And they're digitizing thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands. Like, I don't even know what the number is. But huge, huge, huge numbers of books throughout since, since the printed word, right? So some academics got a very interesting idea. They said, oh, you know what we can do? Since once you digitize all these books, you have all the words that have appeared in print. So you can track how often a word appears over history. You could say, wow, that word is being used a lot more during this period of history. You understand? So do you know what the two words since the mid-1960s, right? Right? You know that there was a huge cultural shift in our country in the 1960s, right? Since the mid-1960s, there are two words which have taken a huge jump up. You know what one of them is? Me. You know what another one is? Want. <laughs> and you know what word has experienced a precipitous drop? Fair. So basically... Just to put that into a sentence, if you want to look through this window into our culture, right, you get the mindset of, me want, that's not fair. (laughs) Right? Like, God has this notion of fair, like, well, I actually didn't work very hard. I guess I shouldn't really be the president of the company. No, that's not fair. Why am I not the... And that's not fair. And that's not fair. Right? That, the, because the concept of fair has sort of disappeared and it's been replaced by me and want. So, so this, is, this is very interesting. You know, I'll tell you something else. Just w- w- the first thing that we're supposed to say when we wake up in the morning, the very first thing everyone should say is mode ani lefenecha, right? Melechai vekayam shechecha zaarti Okay, we could spend a whole long time on that. But, but, the, but the bottom line is, it's, we, it means, the simple translation is, um, I gratefully thank you, God, for basically bringing me back to life. Like, every morning, you're essentially resurrected. You know, every, every single morning, all of us are brought back from the dead. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really, really, I mean, I don't want to go into too much into the point, but... That's really actually going on. But just to give you one more detail, we wash our hands then. You've got to wash your hands when you wake up, okay? One, one splash on each hand, you know? Do one, 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 one. So six, six splashes, right? So, so um, why? Because we say there's tumas mace on our hands. That means it would be translated as the impurity of death, right? So... So, so really, when you wake up, you know, when you leave a cemetery, you have to wash your hands. 
So when you're getting out of bed, you're actually leaving a cemetery alive. You're like getting, you're crawling out of a grave. You're leaving a cemetery alive. I mean, it's kind of a way out way of looking at it, but it's not, it's not incorrect. Um, so, so we're brought back to life and we say, I thank, I gratefully thank you, God. But here's the point. This is why I'm telling you this, okay? In Hebrew, it's mode ani. Ani means I. And I heard a rabbi say, I don't remember who, I'm sorry, but I, I thought this was very interesting. Really, it could have been, you, you could have started with the word ani, since I gratefully thank you, right? But they constructed it in such a way that God forbid you should, the first word that you woke up with should be ani, I. God forbid that the first utterance out of your mouth every day should be I. So you say, moda ani. Right? Because if you have too much I consciousness, me consciousness, it, it throws everything off. Everything gets thrown out of whack. Again, we need self-esteem. We have to love ourselves. We have to be good to ourselves. All the above. This is not in contradiction to that. Right? But we also have to have perspective of the larger picture of the role we play vis-a-vis Hashem, vis-a-vis each other, that there's a large construct that we're a piece of. An essential piece, but just a piece. Okay. So now, let's keep on going. I want to show you something that's going to take us, I hope, deeper. Which is, there's a conversation that takes place after the, the, the sin of the golden calf, between Moshe and Yehoshua, right? Moses and Joshua. And by the way, here's another interesting bit of trivia. The only other person who saw the tablets whole before they got smashed was Yehoshua. This is the moment where he sees them. Moshe has come down from the mountain. Yehoshua has been waiting for him for 40 days at the foot of the mountain. The, the tablets are still intact. And now they're about to get smashed. Right as this incredible wake-up call to the Jewish people to like get it together, right? Which they do, which they do, by the way. They really respond uh, appropriately. And Yehoshua says to now. Remember, Yehoshua is going to be the successor to Moshe. Joshua is going to take over for for Moshe. And Yehoshua says, "You know, I, I hear something. I hear the sound of war in the camp." Okay. And then Moshe kind of, you know, he says, no, 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 no. He says, Moshe says, I, I don't hear a shouting of, uh, it says, Gvura. This is, um, if you want to look it up, it's uh, uh, in, the, in the book of Exodus, Shmos, 32, um, 18. He says, I don't hear the shout of Gvura. That means like, uh, like, uh, like power, like fighting, you know. And... And I don't hear the sound of halusha. That means weakness. Like, like I don't hear that there's, we're like beating someone or being beaten by someone, right? Like he's answering this, this uh, observation from Yoshua that it sounds like warfare. So I don't hear the sound of either of those things. He says, I hear just like whooping, like just parting, the sound of parting basically, okay? But if you look at the way this verse is constructed. And then he says, that's, that's what I hear. That's what I hear. That's, and that's the rest of the Pasuk. That's what Moshe says back to him. But look at the rhythm of this Pasuk. It says, Ein kol anos gvura. I don't hear the, the shouting of gvura, right? Of like, and then he says, Ve'ein kol anos halusha. Right? You hear the rhythm? Ein kol anos Blank, ain kol anos blank. And then he says, if you extend it, that same rhythm of these three word phrases, he says, kol anos, and then if you add the next word, anochi. What I hear is the shouting of I. <laughs> that's the next word in that verse. And that's exactly, but it's, it's actually worse than what I'm saying, <laughs> because anochi is how Hashem introduces himself to the world 
when he gives the Ten Commandments. It's the first word of the Ten Commandments. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am God, your God. That's what God says when he gives us the Torah. So here, if you read the Torah, like, like because remember, the Torah is written on so many different levels. The next word, and if you keep the rhythm of the previous phrases, what Moshe is telling Yeshua is, I hear the shouting of I. Meaning, it's, this is, we're the ones, we're the ones who are going to decide everyone, er, everything. And then, what's the next word after that, the final word? Is the letters that spell Shema. Right? Shin, Mem, Ayin. That's Shema. Okay, it's vowelized differently. It means I, that's what I heard, Moshe saying, you know, whatever it was that we just said, that's what I heard. But, if you take these words, Anochi, that they're appropriating the word that Hashem uses for himself. And then they're saying, I hear the shouting of Anochi, I. And then the next word is Shema, so to speak, just to get a little homiletical here, that they're like saying, Shema Yisrael, Anochi, right? Hero Israel, I am God. Each one of us is God. Right? It's like they're saying Shema over themselves. So when I saw that, I was like, I was like, wow. The sin of the golden calf was really bad. It was really bad. It's like first we're saying Anochi, we're like making ourselves like Hashem, and then we're saying, so to speak, Shema in ourselves. So I thought, well, I wonder what the gematria of Anochi Shema is there. So, so this is going to turn into later an advertisement for regular Torah study, but let's just get to it. It's the gematria four ninety one. Now, I know from a different source, from the Imre Noam, okay, that's the Jikover Rebbe. In another context, he had an amazing gematria for this number 491, okay? Um, I, I shared it with you months ago. It's this word, Esnala, okay? And without going into it right now, let's just stay on this, this topic. So 491, now remember, all of Jewish history right now is getting thrown in a different direction, okay? Because basically, here's the plan. We get the Torah at Mount Sinai, right? It says in the Gomorrah that we return to the level of Adam and Chava before they ate from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, right? We're in this amazing place. Moshe comes down with the tablets. We go into Israel, led by Moshe. He builds the Beis HaMikdash, right? which will be the more permanent form of the Mishkan that we've been discussing. And then that's it. That's the end of days. That's the fixing of the world. So that's the track that we're on. And then all of a sudden comes the golden calf and it throws the destiny of the Jewish people onto like, you know, like you, you hear like on projects, like you always want to hear if you're, one of your projects is being fast-tracked, right? That's a very exciting phrase to hear in a company. Oh, it's on the fast track, right? We went off the fast track. We went on to the slow track, okay? It was really, but, 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 but just to look at these words, when we say, when it says, Anochi Shema, right? Or Shemeya, but, but we say on ourselves that, it, that it's about us, and so to speak, we're saying Shema on ourselves. That phrase, those two words, is the gematria of the four exiles that the Jewish people have to go through. Those two words equal Edom, which is Rome, plus Yavin, which is Greece, plus Paras, which is like Persia, plus Bavel, which is Babylonia. Those are the four exiles. So in other words, being hinted out here, when we say these words, right, are the four exiles that the Jewish people are going to have to go through just to show you how many levels the Torah is operating on, like what is just sitting on the page, right? The depths that are just sitting on the page. Just God is just waiting for us to just look at it and to see them. And now I want to give you the advertisement because I, I saw those words, Anochi Shema. I, I put that, that drusha together, okay? Now how would I ever know in a million years that that's the gematria of Paras, Yavin, Bavel, Edom, the four, the four exiles. There, there's no way I would ever know that in a million years. But if you learn Torah every day, and you don't have to learn a lot every day, 
You learn a little every day. So I learned that in another context. And then you all of a sudden have this awesome tool that's waiting for you in the right circumstances that you can apply in another situation. This is the awesomeness of cumulative Torah study, right? It's like I was trying to explain to someone. It's like, you know, you see like a big obstacle and you, you can't get by that, right? But if you stick around long enough, maybe someone will lay, hand you a giant laser. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, how did I get this? Well, I don't know, but I got a big laser. Here I can, I guess I can use this now. Right? So, so this is what happens over if you just stay with it and you just learn every day. It's very, very, um, you, you, you'll reap the benefits. Okay. So now, let's go, let's, let's, let's go deeper still, actually. Okay? Which is that um, Moshe now has to pray for forgiveness and for, for what happens with the, with the Jewish people. You know, that what they did. Because Hashem is ready to wipe out the whole Jewish people. And he says, I'm going to start again with you, Moshe. And, and by the way, this, that should sound familiar to you. Because that's what Hashem said to Noah. Right? He says, I'm going to wipe away the whole world and just start with you. All over again. So, with this in mind, we can get an insight into this Kabbalistic teaching that, that Noah's neshama, that Noah becomes, is reincarnated as Moshe. Because Noah missed the opportunity to save the world, basically. Now, it hadn't been revealed into the world at this stage in history yet that you could daven to Hashem to change his mind over such a thing. Right? So it wasn't really Noah's fault. And Moshe now will daven to Hashem. And by the way, again, in fairness to, Mo- to, to Noah, because people pick on Noah, you know, I always feel like we have to defend him. Um, in, 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 in defense of Noah, Hashem actually has to tell Moshe, or hint to Moshe, to pray for everyone to be saved. Because what it says is, Hashem says, I'm going to wipe away the Jewish people and start over with you. And most people just think, oh, there was something wrong with Noah. Moshe, of course, knew to say to Hashem, please don't do that, right? But, but it's, 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 it's a little more complicated than that. Because actually, if you look at the, the, the verse in the Torah, Hashem then says to Noah, desist, right? That's kind of fancy. That means stop. Desist. Don't, don't try to stop me from doing this. And then Moshe goes, well, wait a second, I didn't say anything. And then Moshe goes, oh, I'm supposed to try to stop you. <laughs> this is the Gemara. This is the Gemara says this, okay? Because what Hashem is saying, desist. Don't, don't try to stop me. But if you look, Moshe didn't say anything. So Moshe, but, but to Moshe's great credit, Moshe got the hint. Right? You know, sometimes in relationships... We give each other hints. And sometimes, if the other person isn't getting the hints, you should probably just tell them what you want. (laughs) Because clearly the hints aren't working. I'm always reminded of a little news item that I read that has stayed with me since I read it for some reason. Prince, the music star, or I don't know if he's the artist formerly known as Prince anymore, but anyway a very hugely talented musician, was on tour, and, but eccentric, was on tour in France, and he fired two of his crew because they were consistently not answering his telepathic messages. <laughs> so that's insubordinates. You've got to get rid of people like that in, from your organization, right? So, so the thing is, we're actually guilty of that same thing in our own lives, you know? Sort of like breaking up with this one and divorcing that one. Why? Well, they're not... They haven't telepathically <laughs> read my hints. <laughs> you know, at a certain point you have to say to yourself, apparently I'm not communicating. I must communicate more clearly. And of course that makes you vulnerable because you then might have to say something like, I like you. I want a relationship with you. I want a form of intimacy with you. And then the other person goes, oh, no. 
right? <laughs> Actually not, you know? But then the, the upside is they could say yes, right? And then even if they say no, well, then you're not wasting your time on something that was a dead end anyway. You get to move on, right? So sometimes as much as we don't want to hear no, there's someone who's waiting to say yes to us. And we're not going to be able to get to the person who wants to say yes to us if we're too afraid of leaving this cocoon of regular hints. You know? So, anyway. A little boldness sometimes is like Rabbi Nachman would call holy chutzpah, right? If a person is being l'shem shemayim, they're really, you know, I'm talking about for good things right now. If a person, you know, want to get married, they want to have children, things like this, you know, then, then sometimes a, a person has to be a little bit bold and, and risk a no. But listen, if they say no, that wasn't your beshert anyway, right? As much as you m- may have wished that they were, it wasn't your beshert. So better to get that over with because otherwise, you know, we, we've only got a limited amount of time in this world, you know, just as we say, moving on, Right? So, so anyway, so, so Moshe gets the hint from God, gets the hint from God, as a, another sign of, uh, 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 we don't need to list all the greatness of Moshe, but this is another example of the greatness of Moshe. And then he takes it a step further and he says, you know what, if you, if you don't forgive them, don't keep me around. Erase me from your book, which is something that Noah never said, right? Noah didn't. A, he didn't say, save the world. And B, he said, if you're going to get rid of the world, get rid of me too. So Moshe takes it a step further. He builds on it. He he not only prays to Hashem, getting the hint, but he also puts himself on the line, which Hashem didn't talk about. So this is, Moshe just takes it and then runs with it. You know, amps it up another huge level. And then Hashem says the following. He says, okay. Now this is, we're on to the next point now, okay? Hashem says, all right. I'm going to forgive them. I am going to forgive them. I'm going to forgive the Jewish people. But, you have to understand something. And now, this is Rashi quoting the Gomorrah and Sanhedrin, okay? You see, we use words like punishment, I'm not crazy about this word punishment. It's not inaccurate, and there are probably times where it's even appropriate, right? However, I think that there's a much, especially for our generation, because we're so sensitive. You know, we can't take too much, basically. We're weak compared to previous generations. But that's who we are. That's what it is. So a much better word, and as accurate, I would say, is the word tikkun, fixing, right? So sometimes if we do something and we kind of just mess up, basically, then what's required is a tikkun, okay? It's a fixing. And I think that's a much more positive word and a positive just philosophical understanding than punishment. Because God is good, and God loves us to pieces, there's, there isn't enough room in the world for how much God loves every single one of us. You know, the, the Carlina Rebbe used to say, I wish I loved the most righteous person in the world as much as God loves the worst person in the world. I mean, God, right, it's huge, huge, beyond, 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 beyond amounts of love. So when a fixing is required, right? It's coming from a place of love. It's coming because God loves us and God wants us to be better and want, God wants to give us more. That, that's what it is. But the tikkun, and now I'm getting back to what it says in, in, uh, in, in Gomorrah Sanhedrin that Rashi brings. The tikkun for the sin of the golden calf was so great meaning that what was required was so ridiculously enormous that Hashem does something very, very interesting. Now, now listen to this. And we learn it from this word, these words. We're going to go, go deeper 
into these words, because these two words I'm about to tell you have a very long and rich and amazing history, okay? So listen to these words carefully. Actually, it will, um, there will be a variation on these words, but it's these words. Pakod pakadati. Okay? Pakod pakadati. So Hashem says that I'm going to forgive the Jews, but the tikkun that's required for this is so great that what I'm going to do is I'm going to break it up into little pieces. You know, like in the financial world, we'd use a term like amortize. I'm going to amortize the tikkun over the generations, over history. Remember, what did we just say came right before this? That when we did the sin of the golden calf, that those words, anochi shma, right, is the gematria of the four exiles. So now, shortly after that, God says, I'm going to amortize the tikkun. I'm going to break it up into little pieces, the fixing that's required, so that, and here's the point, with every avera, with every wrongdoing the Jewish people ever do, in terms of my response to them, there's going to be a little piece of the golden calf, Santhirwa. The punishment that would have otherwise been due for the golden calf will come their way. And if you think about it on, on another level, if basically we were supposed to go into Israel, and if we hadn't done the golden calf, we would have gone straight into Israel, the golden calf really does represent all of exile, right? Because it threw Jewish destiny off on a different track. So it, it, it is sort of like synonymous with exile. So it does make sense that anything that we experience is going to have a little piece of a connection to the golden calf with it in terms of what comes down to us because we're only in this situation right now because of that. Okay. But here's the bigger point. And this point, I think, is actually, to me, very inspiring and very beautiful and gives us a very deep insight into how Hashem runs the world. And it involves these words, which says that God is going to basically put a little bit of the punishment otherwise due for the golden calf in every situation, you know? So these words, pakod pakadati, have a very interesting history. And the first time that you see this phrase is actually when Yosef Hatzadik, it's at the end of Sefer Breshis, okay? It's actually... If you um, if you want to, if you want to see him, it's um, uh, chapter fifty, um, verse twenty-four, pakod yifkod. And what Yosef says is, is that remember, Yosef is going to be buried, and now the Egyptian, the Egyptian slavery period is about to start. So things are about to get super dark for the Jewish people. For the next couple of hundred years, it's going to get bad, like really bad. And Yosef says, before he dies, he says, listen, Hashem is going to remember you and he's going to redeem you. He says, it's, it's going to happen. And when it happens, when he takes you out of Egypt, make sure you bring my bones out of Egypt so that I can be buried in Egypt, in, in, in Israel. And what's so interesting also is that you know, Yosef, the gematria of the name Yosef is the same gematria for the word Zion, Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. Meaning to say that, that Joseph was giving everyone strength in the exile, keeping the dream of returning to Israel alive. Because Yosef, who stands for living as a Jew in exile, is the same number as Zion. Right? Keeping the dream of returning back to the land alive. That's what Yosef embodied, even when he was in exile. So he says, you got to bring me back. But he says, it's going to happen. And he uses these same words, okay? Now, now these words become, so to speak, the secret password of redemption for the Jewish people. Because when Hashem calls Moshe to come, he says, Hashem says to Moshe, go to Egypt and take the Jews out of, out of Egypt. 
which is exactly what Yosef said was going to happen, right? And, and, and Hashem says to Moshe, he uses this phrase that, that, that Yosef used. He uses this exact phrase. He says, Pakod Yifkod, because the time of your redemption has come. And then Moshe then, when he introduces himself to the Jewish people in Egypt, he references this phrase also, because that was the password, basically, that, that, that this is for real, that the time has actually come. So now, with this in mind, isn't it fascinating that this phrase about basically dividing up the tikkun, the, tikkun the, the, the punishment coming from the sin of the golden calf is expressed in these words. Pakod pakadity. It's the same, it's the same word. It's the same words. But I don't know if, if, if we're communicating it. The point is the following. That Hashem, in the same simultaneously, when He's saying that I'm going to work out and you're going to have to pay off this, this debt due because of the golden calf, that's the same phrase as, I'm going to redeem you. Meaning, I'm bringing Mashiach. Meaning, when you experience bad times or hard times in your life, simultaneously, those things are getting you closer. Do you hear the point? It's not, I'm falling further and further back into the hole. Anything that's troublesome that's happening is simultaneously bringing me closer to redemption. This is the point. This is Hashem's love for us. Now, let me show you where this word, because this, I think, is really super beautiful. Pakad, the first time you see this, and, and, and this is now... Remember, we did the double, the doubling, two words, the two-word phrase. But it's a doubling of this word, pachad. The first time that you see pachad in the, or pachad, not pachad, that's a different word. Um, that means like trembling. Pachad, the first time that you see pachad in the Torah, it's not in the double version, but the single version, okay? It's in a very, very significant place. Remember, we talked about, it, we just said that that's the language of redemption. Right? Now, remember, there are two things going on in the world. You've got the micro track, which is the personal track, where all of us are trying to fix our own souls, basically. And we've got who knows how many past lives, you know, that we've got to figure out. I mean, don't look into them. I strongly recommend no one ever talk to anyone about trying to figure out past lives. I, I just think it's very dangerous and just avoid it, okay? But nonetheless, we do have to, in this life, fix previous things, okay? So there's the individual track, perfecting your own soul. Then there's the macro track, which is perfecting the world. And we're working on these two tracks, okay? Now what's very striking here is that the first time that you see this phrase for redemption is used regarding Sarah... When God visits her and tells her that she's pregnant at the age of 90. So it's this amazing miracle. And it says that the way it's translated is God remembered Sarah. Meaning he allowed this miracle to take place for Abraham to impregnate her essentially. Right? That, that in itself from Abraham's side was also a miracle because he was a hundred, right? So, so here you have this, this amazing event take place. But I haven't made the, the point yet. What, I'm, what I want to show you is how this phrase, pakad and pakod yikadidi, that the, those, those two phrases, one which is signaling the redemption of the entire world, and the other, which is the first use of it, is Sarah's pregnancy, are basically two parallel expressions of the same idea. 
because the arrival of Mashiach is compared to the pregnancy cycle that a woman goes through. Because what, what is the result of a pregnancy? It's a new creation, right? And what are the, what are the, um, that's the messianic period, right? What are the, um, what is the period before the world experiences Mashiach called? Um, the pangs of childbirth, right? It's likened unto the pangs of childbirth, right? Which is the whole kind of apocalyptic scenario, right? So, so, so on the micro level, on the personal level, you see sort of the gestation of the world. Remember, each person is called a world. If you save one person, it's like you save the whole world. So you see, like on the individual level, there's a birthing of a new world, the birthing of the new era, the messianic period, the whole history of the world is sort of expressed in one's pregnancy, culminating with pang, the birth pangs of Mashiach, which, which it's called. Like those are the labor pains on an individual personal level, right? And on the macro global level, that's what sometimes is referred to as the war of Gogu Magog, the, the craziness that happens in the world before the world becomes transformed. So interestingly, this same language, right, of pakad is expressed in terms of Sarah's pregnancy and in terms of Mashiach coming in the redemption of the world and paying off all of the things that we have to fix. Both of them are using the same language because it's the same. One is a microcosm of the other. One is a miniature expression of the more macro concept which is the fixing of the whole world. Now, I just want to wrap it up and, uh, and, you know, just maybe one last thought. Uh, so, Vayakel is the name of the Parsha. And this is with the, the Mishkan, building the Mishkan. And, uh, Again, we said that the whole idea of building the Mishkan is, is correcting this um, I-centric view of the world because it's got so many different pieces and each one is important, but they all have to be there and properly arranged. I mean, can you imagine if the menorah, right? The menorah, like the menorah is like the centerpiece. You know, we have it on coins and on the State of Israel stamp and everything like that. Like the menorah is like our thing, right? So can you imagine if the menorah is looking at the Mizbeach, that's the altar, right, where you would put the offerings. And it says, you know, the fire coming out of the Mizbeach, it's so much more than my fire. <laughs> I, the menorah says, I wish I was the Mizbeach. I mean, how, how heartbreaking would that be? You're the menorah, and you're looking at this other guy, and it's like, well, he has more fire than I have. You're the menorah. You know how great you are? Like, you're just like looking at that other guy and it's like, yeah, but there's more fire coming out of there. It's like, that's a different job. He needs more fire because they're putting large pieces of animals on him. You know, your, your fire is a completely different fire. Your fire isn't a cooking fire. Your fire is an illuminating fire. A completely different thing. Do you know who you are? Do you, have no, do you have any concept of who you are? Like, figure out who you are before you start saying, well, that guy's got more of whatever. Because you have the most of what you have. <laughs> right? You do. So figure out what that is, and then how you can make that even better. That, that's what it's about. So... So one last thought. Vayakel. The gematria of Vayakel is the same, I noticed, is the same as the word kana. Kana means jealous. It's translated as jealous. And interestingly, it's translated, it, it's, it appears in the second of the commandments when God says the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is as we said, Anochi Hashem I am Hashem your God who took you out of the house of Egypt. 
Don't have any other gods before me. So that's the, that's the second commandment, is don't do idol worship. And of course, as Rabbi Nachman brilliantly, brilliantly points out, and I think this is especially important for our generation, a lot of people will say, well, wait a second, I believe in God, right? I believe in Hashem. But there's another commandment, which is not a repetition. It's a separate commandment. Believe in God and don't believe in any other powers. You see, someone can believe in Hashem and also believe in other powers. Do you understand? Judaism, Torah, is actually radical monotheism. It's, a, it's actually a radical, it's a radical philosophy. Because we're saying there is no other power. There is only Hashem who gave us the Torah. And every, all peoples have a share in the Torah. Jews and non-Jews alike all have a share in the Torah. And there is a Shemayim, there is a heaven for the righteous of all the nations. Right? But there isn't room for any other construct. Right? You know, there's a, a very interesting... Anyway, without, without going more into it. So, no other powers. And when it says in the second commandment, no other powers, God says, the way it's translated in English, I don't know if it's a good translation, but it's certainly a very provocative translation. It's, God says, because I'm a jealous God. I, I don't want you having any other relationships with any other religions, basically. Okay, now, now you think about that. Okay, now obviously God is not a human being and God is beyond all of this. But he's expressing himself in these terms so that we should understand it. That's the point. Not that God is checking his email every, you know, two minutes. Did she write? Did he write? Right? What does this mean? <laughs> it's a very strange text. To like show, he's showing his, the, the malachim, the angels. What do you think he meant by that? Right? It's, <laughs> that's not going on. When, when he expresses himself with this name, with this word, kana, jealous, that's for us to have an appreciation of something. So what, what, is that, what is that that we're supposed to have? So as I understand it, it's that God is involved, is telling us that he's involved in a relationship with us and that he cares. He cares. You know, if you... If, if, if my wife is talking to another man too long, I don't like that. And I think that there's something right about me not liking that. And I think that she actually appreciates my not liking that. And the same thing if I'm talking to another woman. She would be like, what are you doing? You're spending a little too much time talking with that woman. What's going on with that? Right? And I care, I appreciate that she cares. So Hashem is telling us by saying that he's jealous, meaning to say, again, he's not a human being and petty. He wants us to understand this mindset that he is involved in this intense relationship with us, keeping us alive every single moment, keeping the world going, every single moment, and he doesn't want us looking elsewhere. Because that means something to him. He wants us to have our eyes on him. Because he has his eyes on us. And that's an exclusive relationship. And so, to complete the point, it's very meaningful that Vayakel is the gamachi of this word, kana, the numerical equivalent of kana, because, which means jealous, because Vayakel is about building the Mishkan, which is a fixing for the Chetaegel, which is a fixing for the golden calf. And the whole golden calf was turning to another place, in this case, ourselves, other than him making our own selves the focus instead of our relationship with him the focus. So in this way, you see, again, Vayakel, 
Remember, we said that the Mishkan is a fixing for the sin of the golden calf. So interestingly, the Gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word Vayakel, the name of the Parsha, which talks about the building of the Mishkan, is the same number as Jealous. Because that's a fixing. That's, that's God saying, look to me. Look to me. Okay. Uh, Sparta, mm-hmm. Thank you.